Hello and welcome to Mouthwash, TBD's podcast with me, Paul Armstrong, creator and curator of TBD and founder of the Emerging Technology Advisory, Hereforth. My guest today is none other than TBD Conference's speaker alumni and world-renowned futurist, Tracy Follows. Her new book, The Future of You, Can Your Identity Survive 21st Century Technology, has implications for every human on the planet and where we go as a species next. Tracy doesn't pull any punches when it comes to your future, so strap in for some eye-opening realities that are heading your way. Find out more about Tracy over at futuremade.consulting and enjoy the show. Tracy Follows is a truth seeker and a truth teller, a CEO of Future Made, the futures consultancy advising global brands and specialising in the application of foresight to boost business. She works with clients to help them see opportunities and act on them. Tracy's book, The Future of You, Can Your, Identify, Can Your Identity Survive 21st Century Technology, is out now and discusses a range of technologies from health passports to virtual legacies. From Think with Google to Forbes, Cairns Lion and Cogex, Tracy is everywhere and for really good reason. She's not afraid to ask the hard questions and give damn good answers as well something you're probably about to wear witness to tracy welcome to mouthwash's first cohort how did today treat you it was okay my internet went down <laughs> oh god how did that how did you cope or was uh, that just I, bliss <laughs> well yeah it was a bit of both actually maybe we'll talk about split identities but yes it very much felt like that, <laughs> <laughs> I love that. oh god okay right this should be fun um, we're all good now though we're all good now <laughs> i was just gonna say i was like having slight heart, heart, heart palpitations i was holding back i didn't there. tell you <laughs> oh i tell you we've we've dealt with worse things we've dealt with worse things um it's not just me and tracy talking um i want to hear from you if you have a question please use the hashtag mouthwash show normally we could hand around the mic and that sort of stuff but um it's more of a, a show on uh, mouthwash for the moment um so yeah so i'll do my best to get them in and who knows tracy will go through them and uh, answer those at the end as well she's that good as well um right okay let's start with what was the first thing you thought of when you woke up this morning um, God, I can't remember. Um, I thought um, I've got to do a lot of work before the day starts. That's what I thought. I thought, how am I going to do, like, I've got about three jobs at the moment. How am I going to do the one job before the other two start? Um, and also, I need to get the dog to the groomers. Have I got the time right? So there you go. Pretty mundane. <laughs> Hey, we've we've had lofty stuff on mouthwash thus far, and we've had very mundane stuff as well. You told, you said I I told the truth. <laughs> exactly, exactly, and that's all we can ask for these days. That's all we ask for. Um, how's the last twelve months been for you? Um, pretty mixed actually. Um, lots of difficulties, you know, in terms of you know having your life cancelled, I guess, um, yeah. and then having to reorientate it and your business and other things to, yeah. In, in a slightly different direction and then you know obviously family issues there's been a, a lots of knock-on effects for lots of people um yeah. so it's been a yeah very mixed year but you know I managed to get the book out and I probably wouldn't have done it if I hadn't have been forced to sit at my desk for nine months <laughs> <laughs> but, it, but you'd already started it right before the pandemic I'd started it but then actually I ripped up the first two um chapters that I'd written I had actually oh. written a chapter on the future of identity and marketing. And actually, that's still sitting here somewhere to do something else with. Um, but I took that out and I started um, reframing what I was writing because I could see that with COVID, um, I could see where a lot of the, the technologies and our application of a lot of the technologies that were going to go. I'd already started to think about that. but um, And I started again, actually. Yeah. Oh, OK. Well, rip that out because we're going to be talking on Friday, aren't we, about how identity and work mm. uh, matches for TLA. So I'll talk a bit more about that um, at the sure. end of the show. Excellent. Um, that's good. Um, 
I think the bio I mashed together says a lot about you. You've done a lot. You're doing a lot and that sort of stuff. Um, in 30 seconds or less, tell me about young Tracy, though. What was she like? A young Tracy, a uh, bit of a reader. Oh, my goodness, I loved reading. Like The best bit of the week was going to the library with my mob and getting three or four Georgette Hare books and then Agatha Christie books and then Nancy Drew books. And I'm quite an obsessive reader, so I couldn't just read one book in a series. I had to read the set. Um, <laughs> I like collecting things, I think. Um, so I loved that. I loved reading. I loved putting on plays. I used to write plays for the class, you know, all those sorts of things. Um, not particularly sporty. Um, yeah, I liked my books. I liked my thinking and I, and I loved writing. And how did you, um, I, I mean, you've, you've mentioned a lot of detective and sort of crime there. How did you get into futurism? <laughs> Searching for clues to the future. Yeah. Yes. Um, uh, well, I worked in advertising for over 20 years and I was doing a lot of strategy work. Um, I'd done philosophy and technology previously. And so putting sort of society, technology and philosophy together does or can take you in the direction of future studies or strategic foresight or futures. Uh, or futurology, however you'd like to term it. Um, and I've always been um, interested in the future and wanting to anticipate what comes next. Um, I, I am aware, I mean, you asked me about younger Tracy, even as I was a young person, which I'm not now, as I was a young person, I was always thinking about the future. For me, I think it was, in some senses, a bit of escapism. I was always thinking about what the alternatives for the future would be. And um, haven't grown up, you see. Um, and I continue to do that now, preparing for different possible alternative futures and trying to prepare others for those and trying to predict it too. And mm. um, what's the futurism uh, industry like at the moment? Inclusive, representational? Um, much more representational. I, I found it was very difficult to get into um, back in about sort of 2013. I couldn't find the community. And I think part of the reason for that was that um, a lot of it um, is spun out of the US. So there mm. are a lot of really well-known futurists um, in the US. And a lot of it comes out of military and also space technology, of course. So there's Hawaii and Houston and um, some, you know, really, um, really well-known, well credentialed you know places to go and study future studies and the methodologies and the capabilities and to give you all those frameworks and models um but I couldn't I couldn't find the community and eventually I did find somebody who then put me in touch with somebody else and then suddenly this this community of futurists was sort of <laughs> I I'd sort of, I sort of, it was an, an I don't know, it was revealed to me somehow. Uh, and I went to the World Futures Society event in San Francisco in 2015. And that's where I met a lot of people that were very helpful and very useful. And I still talk to you today, actually. Um, and what you found in the last 12 months, I think, is that we've always done big projects for clients or organisations or charities or brands about the future, um, both policy making and decision making and sort of commercial um, decision-making, helping with both of those. Mm -hmm. But increasingly, what's happening now, which was, I think, always always an ambition of the futures industry, was to try and get as many people as possible learning these tools and models and learning foresight themselves so that they could apply it in their own lives, whether that be personally or whether that be in their own organisations. And what you've seen over the last 12 months is an explosion in the course offerings because it's so much easier um, to offer at least something across Zoom and you don't need to travel to the US or to um, Denmark or to Hawaii or New Zealand or, or wherever Australia um, mm. we can all meet together and I think that's what's happened and and that's been really successful I think. 
I think that's one of one of the things about the pandemic, isn't it? Is like education has seen sort yes. of a boom. One of my one of my um, biggest bugbears in life is that there is no university of life, if that makes sense. Like literally, the <laughs> smartest people from around the world, like the best economist, the best psychologist, the best all of the ists, come together and go, "That's the school." And then if you want fringe schools and that sort of thing, you can do it. But like that is the best of the best, and everyone has access to it. And I just you think should, that you should set that up, Paul. Do you know what? I've written it down. It's on my life goals. I'm doing it, you know, and that sort of thing. It's just... Um, Create the future. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Create the future. Yeah. Um, well, as long as you're helping, maybe I can do it with season one cohort. I, I, who knows? I'm sure we've yeah. got... Um, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Right. Planted that seed. Okay. We'll see where that goes. You mentioned um, people changing um, an attitude and technology and that sort of stuff. Talk to me a little bit about um, how the pandemic's affected people's online and offline identities. Um, what's going to stick around, do you think? Um, I think obviously the thing that will stick around, not in the same guise it's in now, but is the 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 sense of virtuality. Um, I think one of the big things, one of the big flips that's happened is that we used to think about the physical world being real, and we used to think, well, the virtual world is a kind of copy or a not so good copy, like a faded version of it. It doesn't have the original, it doesn't have the virtues that the original physical world has. And I think what's happened <clears throat> is that we're now this will change again a little bit in the future, but I think we now recognise that actually there's plenty in the virtual world which is inherently valuable itself. Um, and in some ways, it's a it's a virtual first world now for some things, like you mentioned education. That's potentially, it could be that in the future, you know, that's virtual first and physical second. Mm. Um, so I think that's one of the big things, because now, <laughs> in the last 12 months, we actually thought, well, it's it's not the virtual world that's harmful. You know, you think about people going down rabbit holes and um, sitting at these gaming stations and, and not eating for three days and, um, you know, dying sitting in their pyjamas, <laughs> gaming away. Um, that's, uh, yeah. Um, but, but actually, it, it wasn't that. That was the safe space for the last sort of 12, 18 months and the harmful space was the physical world. And I think it's going to take a long time um, for people to psychologically recover from that. Um, and I think the other thing we saw was that people who did um, absorb themselves in virtual worlds, um, whether it be events or games or you know the likes of Sims or Second Life, um, they did develop alternative identities. And mm. much of that was as an escape from the real world. Um, they, they could play, explore, experiment with their identities. And I think that's something that's going to stay with us. Um, and actually, in a funny sort of way, it's become much more acceptable now. It's not just the nerds. It's kind yeah. of everybody's doing that. You know, look at Roblox and the next uh, the next generation growing up. They're, they're very creative with the very notion of identity. And I think that will stay with us. I think that's really interesting. The, the one thing I've been looking at throughout the pandemic is the VR numbers, because I thought those things mm. were flying off the shelves. And at the start, they did, and then it dropped off a cliff. And then basically, people are sort of um, connecting with people in the real world, you know, uh, but like Zoom, sorry, when I say real world, I mean Zoom. Mm. Um, and real world um, now, obviously, as we come out of lockdown, it, VR just can't seem to sort of get a hold. I want to talk a bit later about big tech and sort of how that's sort of pushing on, and mm. the, the main player being Oculus at the moment. Um, when, when it comes to VR is that one of the that that's the experimentation area I would imagine when it comes to identity is that is that fair to say um yes I guess it is um 
Although I think actually, you know, platforms like Twitch and some of the platforms in China and, and Asia in general, uh, where it's more to do with you just wearing an avatar in a digital world, um, mm. is probably the the place that's exploding. I think where VR is really really interesting is in mental health um, and sort of self-diagnosis and self-learning um especially when you've got a kind of um feedback loop from sort of your biofeedback it's attached to your body and it's yeah. reading your biometrics and your your body and that's feeding your brain um and telling you you know to calm down or to act like this or to um to behave like that and over time you can learn it and i think there's some really really interesting new developments with mental health arts culture and VR together. That's the area I think is really interesting for VR. Mm. The content's yeah. there they're in that area at the moment. Some really great content. I think in some other areas, the content isn't there and that's potentially why it hasn't really quite taken off yet. Yeah. One of my friends said that she can only enjoy um, Netflix when she's in VR because she's in a lodge and not her <laughs> front room, which I thought was amazing to hear. I was just like, oh, that's quite interesting. Um, yeah. All right, let's talk about the book. Um, I love the book. It's a chunky read. Um, I took your recommendation and read a chapter at the time and um, mm. thought about it after. Um, each chapter references uh, a different you statement, destroying you, creating you, replacing you, um, watching you. Um, mm. What was your favourite chapter and why? Oh, I can't believe you're going to ask me my favourite child. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'll tell you. No, um, I do... I mean, I did enjoy researching the chapter on legal identity because it is the it is the fundamental part of this yeah. once our identity becomes a digital identity then all these other things become possible but so that was the most interesting in terms of researching i think perhaps the most enjoyable and where i see all of these fascinating um i don't know um enhancements and experiments is really is more in um connecting you and creating you because those are the chapters where it is about how media can be used as a tool to not only help you do things um, but help you become somebody um, different become more you enhance you or even develop alternative views and I think probably especially when you're sort of researching what's happening in Asia um, that is really interesting and I, I think the two chapters connecting you and creating you are probably uh, like twins digital twins um, because, you know, the way in which you create and define and shape you has an effect on your relationships with others. So it, 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 they're two chapters that go together, I suppose, and I think those are probably the most interesting creatively. Mm. Um, you wrote the book because your account got hacked on Facebook. Can you tell <laughs> us um, what happened and what happened after that? Yes, well, um, you think you're talking to Tracy Follows, but according to Facebook, you're not tonight, everyone. You are speaking to Byron Loweth. Um, because in 2016, I started to get these emails to my real email account, which is the one I used to log into Facebook, saying, Dear Byron, um, how are you? You know, you should update your status. Or, oh, Dear Byron, look at what all your friends are doing. And I looked at all these guys and they were sort of mid thirties, having a great time, thought, I wish I knew them. Um, but unfortunately I didn't, they weren't my friends. Um, they were they were friends to this chap called Byron Loweth. So I thought, well, my, ha my account's been hacked. I, I don't know whether it was or whether I clicked on a link beforehand or something, a phishing attempt, no idea what happened. 
suffice to say, I tried to log in with new details, couldn't. When I couldn't do that, Facebook asked me for a passport or a driving license, so some official documentation that could be used to authenticate my identity. And when I scanned that in, Facebook told me I wasn't me. Um, so I thought, well, actually, I don't know what to do here because the system, as it is as, as part of the machine, as part of the platform, doesn't allow you to sort of to, to speak to anybody, to take issue with that, to try and discuss it or try and correct it. According to the machine, which was reading my identity, I wasn't me. So I couldn't really do anything about it. And to this day, I haven't got a Facebook account because of that. Now, I could have created a fake identity and reopened it, but all of my images and all my photos and everything was still on Facebook as far as I know. I, d I don't know. i kind of in, in this limbo, sort of weird limbo land. But I did think about it a lot. I thought, what's happened here? I thought the state authenticated me because they uh, officially gave me a passport. Um, and then there's me. I know I'm me. So I can I, I can authenticate me physically in front of somebody. I can say, yes, my name is Trace Follows. But there's this third element, this machine telling me I'm not me and actually thinking that Byron Lowis is me. What's even more potentially interesting, I think, is that a f about a year ago, I started to look through um, other platforms think, Byron Lowis, actually, does this person exist? Or is it just a synthetic identity, which um, I think is the fastest growing um, type of fraud online or identity fraud online at the moment? And I actually found a character called Byron Lowes on Instagram, who's got a fair few followers, not that many, but most of them have sort of names that are different combinations of all of my names. Now, that's a bit weird and more than a coincidence, I think. So um, I don't know. I can never be sure, but it could be that that's a synthetic identity that's been made up of, of my name and some of my, you know, login details, and maybe they have access to my Facebook account. I, I have no idea. Um, but you can see, you know, that, that happened to me, and I started to think, hang on a minute, we've always had the debate about whether identity and the self resides in the consciousness, is it a mental thing, mm. um, or whether it resides in the body. You know, you change your physicality too much. Are you still the same person? Are you still you? Now, the biology of self and the psychology of self has been joined by this third dimension, which is the technology of self. And I think that's really interesting. And I think it's it's being undervalued as an issue to debate and explore. And I think before we know it, it will be having its impact on us and we, we won't have um, thought about it um, and prepared for it enough. Mm. Did you think much about your identity before that happened or was that the defining moment? I think I did, actually, implicitly. I think I've always been interested in these sorts of things. You know, in terms of philosophy, I'd always been interested in um, psychology, uh, philosophy of the mind. Um, mm. I was very interested in sort of, you know, existentialist sort of literature and Albert Camus and things like that. So what I hadn't done is draw it out and realise that that was an explicit thing. Mm. But it had always been, I suppose, playing on my mind. And um, in 2016, I started to think about it. And then I sort of thought, that's it, you know, our identity is completely distributed across the internet. It's fragmented, it's divided, it's split. Um, what's that going to do to us? Um, and that's, I mean, the first part, the preface to the book is called Distributed You. And that's the premise from which all of this starts from, which is potentially we don't really have that much control over our identity anymore. Potentially we don't even have autonomy over it. It resides not in the mind and not in the body, but in the internet. Can we ever reclaim it? 
Yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, when I, when I was reading the book and sort of thinking about this, I was like, identity online and offline is kind of like a spectrum. Uh, it's got nuances, it's got subtleties, but there's an irony in so much that we're all um, yearning to be seen, Instagram, uh, Twitter, and that sort of thing, and admired with things like selfies. But we also really want our privacy. Um, mm -hmm. Is it realistic to think we can have our cake and eat it? No, I don't think it is. Um, because there is that exchange, the way in which it's been set up to now. I mean, Tim Cook will say, yes, you can still have your privacy. And he'll say, presumably, that they have uh, the tools and the processes and the protections um, that, that enable that. But I don't think you can really. Um, there is one part of the book where I do discuss the potential for the pseudonymous economy, where, and it's not my idea, this is Balaji, um, Balaji uh, Srinivasan's idea, and he's done a... Uh, he's done a presentation before about the pseudonymous economy where he's suggesting that we'll have three types of identity. We'll have um, like a private personal identity. Um, we'll have a, an identity we uh, use at work to earn money and then we'll have a pseudonymous identity. And it is the pseudonymous identity that potentially will go out into social spaces and um, tell people our real opinions, maybe even whistleblow um, on things that are going on at work or in our lives or, or whatever. But some things are too dangerous to attach to your real name. So you will create a pseudonym and that's where potentially you'll make another, uh, another. <laughs> it'll be another revenue stream if you're blogging about it or you're on Patreon or, or whatever it might be or Substack. Um, but um, it's, a, it's potentially a way of um, disclosing real opinions or or real facts that you don't want to or you feel are too uh, difficult to to talk about with your own name that kind of talk, talks about alt um, accounts which are mm -hmm. becoming more and more popular where you've got a public account and a private account on things like instagram because you don't want to be seen to be liking croissants but really you're a croissant fiend you know what your does that say about... and your insta <laughs> and your insta exactly yeah, yeah. um what, what does that say about society and where, where does that sort of end um, it ends in a very, uh, probably a very bloody, horrible, um, I, I mean, bloody in the sense, I'm not swearing. I mean, a very, <laughs> a, a, a very messy, should we say, um, place because potentially, um, there's a creeping authoritarianism where one can only side with the prevailing narrative or propaganda and potentially that covers up a lot of the truth. I've seen, I think personally, we've seen a lot of that over the last 15 months where you know the truth is trying to slip through but it kind of gets branded a conspiracy theory um not all the time but sometimes you know and i do think you know we are not disclosing our opinions and we're not debating them we're certainly not doing that online i think if people want to do that they tend to go off into groups to do that where it's it, it, again in a funny sort of way it's much safer in the physical environment for that but we can't do that because at the moment it's 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 deemed not safe to be yeah. in physical contact with other people. So um, I, I think uh, if this if this um, free speech issue does not get sorted, it's it's going to end in a very bad place. Um, what, yeah, I, I agree with that. I, I, there's got to be a way we can walk it back, though. When you think of like a lot of social media, it's about keeping up with the Joneses. Um, or as you put it in the book, um, because we're all sort of like made to feel like we should do these things, you know? How do we get people to uh, have more self-assurance and confidence around not following the pack? Is that realistic? Um, my own thought is that, or hope, is that this will get better when we have virtual media. 
My sense is that in social, it's a particular problem with social media potentially um, in that you're in a, um, this is one of the reasons spaces is quite interesting because when you can only type things, you can't even go by tone. You can't really see people's characteristics or their expressions or anything. And you're all the time trying to, to work out who they are. They know this. They know that it's very difficult to establish their identity. And um, it goes back to something Marshall McLuhan said um, about when you're on the frontier, um, you are you're striving to be heard and to seen to be seen and so you assert your identity more and my feeling is that that assertion is tipping over into aggressiveness and then everybody starts um uh, behaving like that and talking like that and communicating like that and then it's just a it's just a horrible mess but i mm. think it's true what you're saying you're in a you're in a space where you can't really work out an identity so there's an overcompensation now potentially when you get into virtual media, we will have our 3D forms, we'll have mm -hmm. our body scanned, we'll have haptics so you can touch. It's not just, you know, the words typed out. And so even with this, with spaces, talking and hearing the audio, so you've got that other sense working. I think it's going to help conversation, help people debate, help to um, allow many different points of view and opinions to be heard equally and, you know, challenged of course and i think once we get into virtual reality i'm hoping that we might feel that some of these um these issues and, and problems will be resolved yeah i definitely think the virtual world's got there's a lawlessness at the moment there's a massive creativity that's going to be allowed and that sort of stuff there do seem to be some sort of netizens like andy bayo and that sort of thing who are sort of charging a good way and like have their good intentions and that sort of stuff and then you've got facebook and pals who are just like up for you know mugging people for data and that sort of stuff i want to talk a bit about um whatsapp a bit later but before i do that let's talk about the real world um for a sec um I was really fascinated with the stuff about um, the Chinese central identity system. Uh, mm -hmm. What do you call it? Um, social social credit system. score. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, mass control, verification via technology, curbing everything from movement to social behaviours and that sort of stuff. So if you jaywalk, your photo goes up on a screen and you get publicly shamed and that sort of stuff. Um, it's almost like the dial is set to like 100 of what the UK system is and we're at like 10%. Or do you think that we're higher at the moment? Um, I think we're higher than that, yeah. We, what, we just don't see it. Well, let's say 40. Oh, okay, higher. Yeah. Because we, we've got facial recognition over here, haven't we? We've got the vans and that sort of stuff. It's not as prevalent as it could be, but um, it, the, the use of those hasn't really been activated. They're sort of still testing, right? Yeah, i tell you what. Did you want me to tell you why I think it might be 40? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, because I think what's happened in the last 15 months, there's been a shift from... In the UK, for example, we used to have quite a lot of trust between peers, neighbours, colleagues, just other people. Um, and that P2P way, I think we had a lot of trust, a lot like Taiwan. Um, there, were, there, was, there was trust between the community. In China, you don't have that. Um, people do not trust each other. They trust the state. Now, you can, um, you can assume that that's partly to do with um, history that that's been embedded in society but it's more than that because the whole reason the social credit system came along was because it was actually commercial it was nothing to do with um, state enforcement or surveillance it was to do with ensuring that people were paid back when they lent credit um, and there, there wasn't uh, you couldn't just walk away from a loan that you owed and so it actually came through the the financial credit system it's partly why it's called what it's called 
Um, and I think what we found, you know, in the last 15 months is that there's been this way of behaving, which is encouraged people to snitch on each other. I've never seen this in the UK where um, people are turning on their neighbours, um, dobbing them in, calling the police, that sort of thing. And that, I think, is a is a creeping um is, is 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 an element of uh, authoritarianism that I am surprised to see in a Western democracy. Certainly surprised to see in the UK. But the other reason I would say I think it's a bit higher than ten percent is because that we've had the conversation about um, COVID vaccination passports or health passporting, and we talked about it being used domestically, not just international for international travel. Now there's a conversation about voter ID, which I also sort of predicted in the book. But thirdly, and the thing that I'm most worried about, is that um, behind the scenes, there's this UK health security agency being set up. And there was a policy paper that came out um, at the end of March, and I think the UK health security agency has been established now. I think they established it in April. Um, but one of the aims is to form a deeper integration between health protection science, whatever that is, and data. And they say that we need to consider how best to engage with citizens and drive behaviour change in the 21st century. Now, what that says to me is that that's, that's got the potential for a state authority to use digital and digital tools to drive conformity amongst the population as they see fit for the public good, for public health. And I think that only needs to be misused in the tiniest way possible and that you are into some sort of, it's not a social credit system, it's kind of like a public health social system uh, or social score. And I, you know, that, that does have the potential to be misused. In the book, I talk about sobriety tagging, which I think people will be surprised at. But there's the fact that you can, um, so criminals who've been um, allowed out are then tagged. Um, and it's not just tagged so that um, you can keep an eye on their location. They don't go out of the zone they're supposed to be in. Um, it's, it also monitors their sweat every half an hour so it can tell whether they've been drinking. And that's fitted to people who have uh, committed um, alcohol fueled crimes. And to me, that sort of pairing of um, health data and criminal data is, is very worry, worrisome indeed. No, I, I agree. There are definite lines where, like you say, it can be abused, you know, and that sort of thing. Um, I guess uh, the world's also looking to India. They're doing a lot of um, stuff with uh, biometrics and identity. <laughs> where would you say they're on the scale? That's a very centralised system in the same way that the Chinese system is very centralised. It's not all all pervasive, though, like um, like the Chinese system. Although with the Chinese system, it's not like it's one big state control thing. It operates at local authorities. It's a net network, a mishmash of lots of different smaller credit systems that all add up to a sort of, or should add up to um, a big system, but the databases don't necessarily talk to each other. In India, it's a bit more straightforward. It's a unique number um, and a biometric, um, but it still, it, it still has the potential to be misused and um, controlled rather authoritarianly, authoritarianly, that's not a word, uh, with um, great, great control and authority. Um, uh, we have operated a federated system in the past in the UK. The system I would really love to see is the adoption of much more decentralised digital um, ID systems like Evrim, like UT. And I think there will be a, a generation, a younger generation who are much more willing to adopt that because it will just become part of their way of life and they'll have, they'll have much more control over it as a user.
I, I think that's true. I think they they want ultimately they want freedom. They want options, and a lot of those have obviously been you know removed at the moment. Um, before we talk um, on Friday about the specific implications for um, digital identities and brands and leaders um, for Tech London advocates, um, give me a quick sort of summation on what brands should be doing and thinking about when it comes to identities as we're coming out of the pandemic. It feels like they've got a traumatized workforce with you know people with different versions of themselves. What does that mean for business and them i think there's a lot of pressure on businesses because you've got a kind of activist workforce in in some um brands and uh, companies and i kind of you kind of look at that and you think well you hired an activist workforce you wanted an activist workforce that's what you recruited for and guess what that's what you've got um so don't be surprised when they actually start to put pressure on the company or the brand to behave in certain ways um so i think there's going to be a lot of tension um because you know that can't go on forever um yes you can um influence your company to um take on certain policies and, and you know you can recommend and lobby them but you can't always kind of get out on the street uh, or go out go out on strike for example you just that's it's not sustainable so i think companies have got to um they're going to have to bite the bullet and address that and in fact i suppose you've seen a little bit of that so we've seen coinbase and Basecamp, and they've gone to the other end of the spectrum um i'm guessing they'll have to be someone somewhere will have to find a balance between those two extremes um <laughs> as usual uh, and um so so that's something that's coming um i think um one of the interesting things is um just when I, when i was at work years ago it was all about sort of working to the brands or the company's values um and buying into that and of course we had the phrase are you a cultural fit I mean, that's really gone by the by now. And it is very much a sort of personal brand, the individual brand. Who are you? What do you bring? You know, the whole thing about bring your whole self to work. Mm. I think, again, how do you accommodate everybody's individual identities? Um, because we've gone the other way. We used to have a kind of conformity. You know, you lived and breathed the brand that you worked for or, or the organization. Now it's again to the other extreme where you bring your personal brand and the kind of company kind of um, must flex to your to your requirements or values or, or needs. Um, so that's another rebalancing that, that has to be done. Um, and again, I would say, you know, with brands, I was thinking about this the other day about how long, how much longer can, can brands exist in, in the way that they have for the last, say, 50 or 60 years when the whole thing post-war was really about organising, managing and planning. That's gone out the window now. That's not what we're doing. What we're doing now is real-time um, sense-making. Um, the world is cha chaotic and complex and we have to navigate, really, rather than manage and organise. And so there's a whole new set of skills, I think, um, that need to be used in the new world to help us navigate it. And are brands the best way? Because increasingly the brands don't seem to be sort of corporate brands they seem to be taking on personalities and becoming characters in their own right in a way and you can see that when they want to pair up with like virtual influencers or or um you know uh, social media influencers and those are the deals that are done who's the biggest brand sometimes you're asking that question <laughs> is it the personality or the influencer sometimes they're bigger than the the brand that's that's um that's hoping to market itself. So I think what I'm really saying is I think there's quite a lot of adjusting to do um, yeah. in lots of different ways. 
I really liked in the book that it wasn't, um, it could very easily have been an Orwellian 1984, it's all doomsday, <laughs> you know, and that sort of stuff. And it really wasn't. Um, I think that you you towed a line of, you know, what's what's likely to happen and, and what could happen. You mentioned earlier that obviously we you think we're walking into a little bit of an issue with health and this sort of like personalised data. What's the more likely scenario of where it ends up um, with regards to just everyday sort of life? Is it that we'll have a digital identity card, we'll have all spaces, or are we going to go even further? Mm, I think we will by 2030 have a digital identity. And I think maybe most of the world will. I mean, there's a billion people in the world who don't even have a legal identity, let alone a digital identity. And the reason I say this is because I think increasingly we're going to find technology platforms or corporate global corporations in the technology spaces are going to be delivering our digital services. Our public services will be increasingly digital. And so you can already see sort of nation state governments receding a little bit from a lot of their responsibilities and local authorities not really having the public funds to finance um, what local communities need. Somebody's going to step in. So you only have to look at healthcare or education Amazon is stepping in, you know, Bezos wants to set up his own schools um, or they buy pill packs so that they can deliver you your pharmaceuticals. You can see the way in which our traditionally physically delivered public services are going to become digital. Now, if they are, then you're going to need an identity and you get, therefore you're going to need a digital identity. So I think it's the only way we're going to be um we're going to be able to have access to some of these really essential services for life. As you say, day to day, these are essential services in life day to day. So that's how we're going to access, um, get access to them. So the question then is, right, if this is inevitable, how do we design it? So privacy is a must or transparency is a must or I have autonomy and uh, can control how this digital identity is used or this digital credential, if you like, in my digital wallet, um, where it's used. Um, whether whether it can be uh, reused, where it can be reused, and, um, and and how many digital credentials I need. So I, th I think that's what's going to happen by about 2030. And I think that will encompass probably digital currency, probably digital health, telehealth, um, and potentially also digital education as well. I'm not saying I think all of this is all going to be digital. Of course it won't. But I think obviously there's going to be... Um, a much bigger digital element than there is now in 10 years time it'll be at least 50 50. yeah i must admit this chat and me reading the book i couldn't get the the westward algorithm circle out of my head um i think they call it ria Bauam or something like that and it represents the entire world um all at one time and shows highlights and anomalies and event but imagine like um uh, a, a black uh, line that sort of looks like it's moving and then when something goes out of sync it like pops out a big red spike and that's sort of thing that's a terrible mm. this, but watch watch worth well very good um i think that's an interesting way of seeing how big tech sees us pretty predictable machines that they like to sort of keep milking um <laughs> is that the only way to sort of fox them is to be unpredictable or do you think that we're gonna you know start using them again rather than up them using us um, difficult to say. I think it's going to be depend a lot on the types of service they, services they offer. I mean, we might have a um, not cynical but sceptical view of, because I think it's all, always right to question um, um, motivations and incentives and, and indeed outcomes of, of anyone, including big tech. Um, but I think 
I think a lot of people are quite readily willing to sort of give up, to, to go in with the value exchange and give up lots of privacy and other freedoms and rights in exchange for convenience. Um, and it is very much, I think, a sense that some people would rather um, sign up to the terms of service of, of Google or Facebook or Amazon or whatever, um, rather than sign up to the, the social contract of, of, the, of the, the government. I'm not saying just the nation state government. I mean, the government of, any, of it, lots of different scales, because really, who delivers? I mean, the, the tech corporations do at least deliver. They deliver amazing services. And, and in, in some ways, they're more uh, responsive to the constituent. So the terms of service is really replacing the social contract or the or the bill of rights or whatever we don't have one here but um the equivalent um that you traditionally have with your nation state and that could be voting democracy that could be um digital currency so money and of course that could be a digital identity so i, I think there's a lot of people who are, are willing to kind of kind of go yeah hey ho, that's that's fine I, i'm i'm happy to do that trade it's interesting actually when i, I looked at china so, I mean, one can um, ponder the reasons for this, um, but the, the, um, the lots, there's a lot of research that shows that actually the citizens in China are quite happy with the social credit system. I mean, those in urban environments more than those in rural, because the kind of advantages you get in that system, like when you get uh, benefits or you're not on the blacklist or you get upgraded to things, then, um, then they tend to reside in an urban environment, not in a rural environment. But I think it was something like, I can't remember, was it 98% pr approval? rating for it now you can you can um surmise as to why that's so high or why people <laughs> say that in a survey um but but i thought that was interesting i think I, i've seen in the last 15 months that people are very very willing to go along with um giving away their freedoms um it, i mean i've been shocked by that actually yeah. Uh, the one thing I've, I was it leads on quite nicely actually to um the whatsapp um point i wanted to make um they're basically saying to people in America, and I think it'll eventually come over here, that essentially um, accept the terms of services or don't use the app, which is mm -hmm. quite a far cry from where they, where most of them started out, if that makes sense, um, whether it was Facebook or anywhere. Normally they're clamoring for users and that sort of stuff. Does that just say how big they are or, um, it, you know, is, are we going to see more of that, do you think? You know, some yeah, said that's a more so. Chinese way of, you know, well, doing big tech. I think the way it might pan out is that you have, I think we have to think about um, media once it has become an internal tool rather than an external tool. So this is why I'm asking the question, can your identity survive the 21st century? So it's all very well, you know, flicking through a news, scrolling through a news feed or, um, you know, reading tweets or, or whatever it might be. Once once technology goes in inside the body, now it can be an enhancement. It can be gene editing. It can be an enhancement to your physicality it could be a prosthetic it could be a chip i know people with chips um you know and they use they use them in everyday ways and kind of don't even think that don't even realize they're there anymore or it could be um cognitive enhancements or some iteration of something like Neuralink. um you want a bit more space you want to enhance or increase your iq all of these things are happening now so who's going to provide those technologies i can't do that myself i can't enable that I can't own that technology. Somebody's going to have to literally rent it to me like a service. Now, once I've downloaded a new language or a few languages so I can join every conference call going all over the world, you know, once somebody plugs unplugs that, 
suddenly I don't have the ability to speak those languages. I can't converse with the people I've built relationships with. So I'll have to keep signing up to the terms of service, won't I? So this is really what I'm saying, that these media technologies are fine-ish whilst they reside outside of us. Once they become ultimately ingredients of our very self, then you are inextricably linked to some of these platforms, not necessarily the platforms we're talking about now, there might be new ones in the future that emerge, yeah. but you've signed up to those terms and conditions and it's a very unequal relationship. I think that's the thing, isn't it? It's, you know, they're not, you know, when we've got boxes in our houses for TV that don't talk to each other, I'm worried that people want to put stuff inside their bodies that then won't talk to each other. And what happens then? You've got to go through multiple surgeries or something, but who knows? Mm-hmm. Um, Let's talk about gender really quickly. Um, not that it doesn't deserve its own show and that sort of stuff. But the EU is considering new regulations for AI. Um, they're not specifically dealing with automatic uh, gender re- re- recognition systems. Um, what sort of uh, issues do you think people and companies will run into in the future if they use outdated data sets when it's understanding gender? Mm, I don't know, really, because I think you sort of, they emerge as you use it. It's very hard to sort of, predict it in advance it's a bit like when are you regulating anything you kind of have to wait for it to happen and then take the action um on it it's it's quite hard to to do it before the event has happened um but my understanding is what the eu are are suggesting is that they do this sort of sandbox sandboxing thing particularly with startups where the startup can talk to them approach them and they'll work together to work out what is the best implementation of the idea so it's not a flat sort of um uh, it's not a flat ban on these technologies but it is definitely a partnership between the regulator or the framework that's been considered legally and the startup or the company that has this sort of new idea you're using the existing technology in a new way that's my understanding of it i think it obviously will hamper lots of innovation but i don't really know what which innovation yet because we haven't really seen this be put into practice how successful could this sandboxing be how much time would it take could it is it even practical for startups it's difficult to know um but i think you know you, you, we're going to have the same we're going to have the same issues um, with the likes of facial recognition or any kind of biometrics, actually, as as has been well documented over the last sort of 24 months, three years. Mm. Um, but what one thing's for sure, the banks have decided it's biometrics. Um, and so whether it's um, facial recognition, um, your iris, your fingerprint, or increasingly the veins in your hand for gesture control, um, these, or, or even in Russia, where they're looking at um, not just gait but um, silhouette, so it can be depicted, you know, who is social distancing and who isn't. It, it's it's hard to predict, but um, I mean, it's going to be a huge, it's going to be a huge area. It's going to be a, a massive industry in and of itself, um, and maybe it, it needs some really specific regulation, not just this generic regulation. But I think as the sandboxing happens, we'll see much more detailed um, aspects of this coming up and it will have its own regulation around it. It'll be interesting to see which countries or which regions decide to do what, whether we have some regions that just just have biometric um, technology in all its possible forms, not just for sort of public service or police or military or anything, but really used in a civilian way. And those that don't will have a very interesting comparison to be made. 
Yeah, I think I think from a from a physical world, like we're all walking around, you know, touching things eventually and that sort of stuff. Um, you know, Amazon is obviously you know pushing the way that we buy stuff, you know, just with a palm, mm-hmm. uh, what do you call it, a vein check or whatever. Um, that's obviously being tested in India. There, mm-hmm. there is an argument to say that it, is the virtual world, you know, and our identity is it more dangerous in there than the real world? It's just hard to. I, I think what's going to happen is there won't be that kind of binary demarcation. In the end, it's just all the world. And even our identities, the way we express them in the real world versus the virtual world now, they're much more merged and blended, particularly when augmented reality comes. And we, much, we, we get much more used to seeing that sort of virtual infrastructure on the physical world. Um, I think it all blends into it. It's just one world. Um, so I, I really don't think we'll be talking about the real world versus the virtual world much longer. Mm. Um, talking about the sort of uh, end of the book as well and that sort of stuff, you talk about digital death and robots towards the end. Um, our bodies obviously die, um, but our minds could live on in others. Mm-hmm. It's Hollywood fuel at the moment, but it's not just that, is it? There, that, there's some real stuff happening behind the scenes. Well, there's lots of people experimenting with whether you can upload your brain into a different substrate. It just doesn't have to be a biological, physical body um, with um, di- di- with differing um, success or failure. Um, there's that. Um, what's really interesting is the digital afterlife. If you can preserve somebody's personality and character and have them not just tweeting away, but living um, as an avatar and communicating as an avatar. So friends and family sort of feel like they're already around. And then there's lots of investment um, money going into sort of longevity anyway, but cryopreservation is still being um, preserved. <laughs> like uh, that's still an ongoing experiment um, about whether you can be preserved and, and come back again. What's interesting to me is the motivation behind it, why people want to um, continue on after their physical death. Um, one of the most interesting little examples, I think, is Deepak Chopra doing his digital Deepak, not because he's doing an avatar of himself that you can kind of put on, on your phone and carry around in your pocket to kind of life coach you, but because he said he would like it to carry on learning um, and educating itself after he's gone. So in that sense, these digital preservations, in some senses, people kind of think that they might be rather autonomous um, and that is really interesting. Like, are they carrying on as real digital representations of you as you existed yeah. and are true to your character when you did exist? Or are they actually quite fictional and they 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 carry on autonomously, but they're they're understood as sort of a fictional version of you? And, and then you're kind of into well, well, who was the real you after all? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that is Hollywood fodder, isn't it? And that sort of thing, for, for sure. It's all but happening, though. That's, yeah. that's the thing. It's all happening. I, I, that's the bit I find fascinating. When I do hear about <laughs> Neuralink, Elon Musk and monkeys and that sort of stuff, I just think back to that scene in The Matrix where he learns Kung Fu in 90 seconds. And I'm all for that. I would love that sort of skill, learning speed and that sort of stuff. But then uh, I also yeah. think of the realities and I'm like, I think I'm going to be long gone by the time that actually happens. <laughs> the not, thing that's it. going to be interesting to watch for is when they link Starlink and Neuralink. That's yeah. what I think. Yeah. Oh, all the things, the links, and that sort of stuff. So yeah. yeah so, so when his uh, network of satellites in the sky, then yeah. In I mean, your brain. <laughs> if only we could have a twenty-year plan for Amazon and see inside it. And be like, oh, we see it now. We get it. You know, that's that's where you're going and that sort of thing. Um, what was the? Um, no, I'm going to ask this one instead. Actually, um, sorry, I've changed my mind. Um, mm. 
on that one. Oh, there's so many. Um, thank God we're having that chat on Friday because there were just so many questions from this and that. Uh, <laughs> so let, well, let's end on, on people because there's people in the room. Um, so identity has come into the public eye loads over the last 12 months of like people having different personalities now, changing their personalities, making big changes and that sort of stuff. Now, don't get me wrong, I do not... Um, claim to have watched a second of the circle but the idea um through the yeah. social show of um people pretending to be different people other than themselves influence others into voting for them so they win money feels like yes good entertainment but actually speaks to a higher level of what's happening in society and that sort of thing we're all obsessed with authenticity truths and such but how does that work when we can have these alt accounts and you know yes. an avatar with fashion the gucci that we couldn't afford in the real world and that sort of stuff yes that's a very good question well the question i'm really trying to answer and I hope I get some way in the conclusion, um, is the, are these alternative identities or is it an extended identity? Um, I won't say what I say in the conclusion because I don't want to spoil it, but um, I think that is the nub of it. Are these different identities or is it just an extension of your own identity? And that, that, is, the, that is the question to ask, really. Um, and that, that's the one we're trying to answer. And that's it's technology that's allowing us to extend in these different ways. What's really happening is that we're in a networked, interconnected world. Of course, our identity is going to be networked and interconnected, and therefore it's much more fluid. So I'm not as interested in the question of the authenticity of identity as I am in the question of integrity of identity. How do we keep all these bits, these fragments that exist in different times and spaces and places um, connected so it feels an integral self rather than the question of authenticity authenticity which is that when is the real you and not the real you I'm not so interested in the realness and the reality I'm interested in the um the integrity the, the the keeping it as a as feeling as a whole so having a sense of self-sovereignty but really just having a sense of self in this complex um kind of you know networked distrib distributed world so I think it's going to really radically alter the whole idea of personhood, the, the notion of it and the way in which we we come to think about where identity resides. Um, and, and so I'm more interested in integrity rather than authenticity of it, really. I think that's a good place to pause there for a second while we do um, Desert Island Tweet. Um, OK, folks, time for Desert Island Tweets, the part of the mouthwash where we pick a tweet or two that's changed the guest mind or way of thinking in some way. So please turn your attention to the nest and I will attempt to do several things at once, which is called speaking and clicking. Um, and this is a tweet that um, Tracy uh, recommended we look at. And um, it was from the Caustic Cover Critic. Tracy, why this one? Well, I like this one because this one looks to the past and it um, dissects and rather satirizes old book covers. Um, and I think it's a good reminder of uh, to us, uh, giving us a bit of perspective on um, looking back is something that seemed very modern and timely. And I might say, given the conversation, a very acceptable um, to all. Um, you look at it now and you just sort of think, gosh, how did, they ever, how did that ever get a pass? So that's interesting. Also, it's very funny. Um, and um, I don't know if you're going to show the other one, but it links to the other one. Uh, I don't think I copied that. Where was it from? Remind uh, me. I, can, I can tell you. It's it was astronaut. in a DM, wasn't it? Yeah, that's it's right. astronaut suicide. So this is an amazing Twitter account. So I haven't really gone by tweet. I've gone by account. This The astronaut suicide account is amazing. They're just amazing graphics. It's 
developed off the astronaut suicide meme, which is kind of interesting and kind of uh, a bit dark, but kind of satirical as well. Um, and I think it's an, an it's an undervalued undervalued use of Twitter. Just these images um, popping into your timeline uh, within all these words, and now within these um, conversations, the audio. I think I love these images, and I think the past of the the book covers and the future of astronaut astronaut suicide. It reminds us actually that even though Twitter is a timeline, it actually brings the past, the present, and the future together. You can always feel like you're in all three of those time horizons at the same time. Loads of people go back and sort of say, this is what I tweeted on such and such. We can delve around and it's it's not that sequential. They're, they can all, all these time horizons can coexist. And I think that's quite an important thing. And we should, we should, um, we should, uh, we should do more of that. I love it. Uh, right. Thank you for sharing that, Tracy. Uh, I'm more than a little interested to see where humans go with tech identity and beyond. Um, there's so many green shoots of areas that I think are interesting and also, you know, ripe for rights infringement, like we've talked about. Um, <laughs> any final advice or thoughts for listeners for the next 24 months and their identities? Um, really just, I think why I wanted to do the book was just, we should be more aware. We should notice things that are happening to us um, and to our identity and think about them a bit more and dissect them a bit more. And then we can work out whether we're happy with it or not, and whether we want to lobby for change. But the first thing is to notice and be aware. So that's, that's all I would, that's all I'm going to try and do and all I can ask of others, I suppose. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Find out more about Mouthwash and the next season over at mouthwashshow.com. Mouthwash is recorded live on Twitter Spaces before becoming the podcast you've been listening to. Thanks to Ecology for planting a tree for every listener and Shell for sponsoring the show. Let me know if you're enjoying Mouthwash so far by leaving us a rating and a review. Remember to subscribe to Mouthwash wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss any of the upcoming episodes featuring activists, AI experts, Silicon Valley royalty, Pulitzer Prize winning journalists and a whole lot more besides. See you next time and remember, always start or end your day with a little mouthwash.